All right, so we're about to turn off on Island, Island Road. Road. About two hours' drive south of New Orleans, in the Mississippi River Delta, there's an island, Ile de Jean-Charles. On the map, it looks like we're on, driving on water because it's so skinny. My producer, Haley, and I are driving down the only road that connects the island to the rest of Louisiana. And if you look on the map, it's just, you know, little specks of land, but mostly blue. It's the end of July. Wow, this is so pretty. And it's beautiful out here. Tall grass, trees. So lush. Marshy grassland surrounded by blue water and sky for miles. But as we enter the island, there's also something a bit unsettling about the place. A lot of the homes look abandoned and beat up from storm damage. There's a sense of isolation, like everyone who used to be here just disappeared. We pass a dilapidated building with a sign out front for the Ile de Jean Charles Social Club. On first glance, it looks deserted. Oh, is that somebody? Yeah, should we, should we get out and try to talk to him? Maybe, yeah. I can't see anybody. He walked away. He disappeared. It's too bad because it's such a cute little place. I want to learn about it. The island is tiny, a little less than one square mile. And everywhere we go, we try to find someone to talk to. The fire station, the few houses that look occupied. Hello? Anybody home? But there's either no one around or they dodge us. We hope to have better luck at the marina just down the road. We find the owner, Teo, sitting out on the back deck overlooking the water. Do you mind if we record? Are you saying... I've done that too many times. Too many? Really? Okay. Okay. He isn't interested in a recorded interview. Says he's tired of talking about all the issues surrounding the island. And there are a lot of issues. The reason this place is so desolate is because over the decades, Ile de Jean Charles has been gradually disappearing. Since 1955, almost all of the land here, 98%, has been swallowed up by a combination of rising seas, erosion, and sinking ground. 98%. This island used to be home to hundreds of people, mainly from the Choctaw tribe, descendants of survivors of the Trail of Tears, who in the 1800s were forced from their homelands by the U.S. government. But today, the worsening effects of climate change have pushed many to leave the island. Just a handful of people remain. Hi there. How y'all doing? Good, how are you? At a battered wood house built high up on stilts, we find Chris Brunet with his dog, Coco. Hi. Chris's family has been down here for five generations. My Native American identity would be the um, Choctaw blood, and our title would be the Jean Charles Choctaw Nation. Chris is one of the few people still living on the aisle, and recently he's faced a tough decision. The Louisiana government is offering an opportunity out. About 40 miles north, the state has been building a subdivision called the New Isle, with brand new homes for Ile de Jean Charles residents, past and present, to move to if they want. The majority of the people does not really want to leave Isle de Jean Charles, but it, because of the changes of the landscape 
around Ali Jean Charles that um, has pushed us uh, to make that decision. When we visited, Chris was sitting in his wheelchair in the shade underneath the house next to a poster he made shortly after Hurricane Ida hit last summer and devastated the region. It's a bright yellow sign propped up in his front yard. The first line that the sign says that uh, Ollie Jean Charles is not dead. And right below that... Climate change sucks. I'm Amy Scott, and this is How We Survive, a podcast from Marketplace where we're following the money to the end of the world. In this case, South Louisiana. And this is our season finale. Episode 8, No Place Like Home. People all over the country are going to have to deal with the climate crisis, whether it's extreme heat and wildfires or flooding and hurricanes. Eventually, many are going to have to consider the inevitable, leaving their homes, giving the land back to nature, and starting over somewhere else. There's a jargony-sounding name for this solution, managed retreat. We touched on it earlier in the season, and it's what we're going to spend this whole episode getting into. Because for parts of South Florida that will be underwater in the coming decades, retreat is inevitable. So what can South Florida learn from a community that's going through it now? First, we explore what relocation looks like for the people of Ile de Jean Charles. And then we'll unpack what retreat might mean for the rest of us, even those of us who don't think we're at risk. Chris has spent all 57 years of his life on this island, and it's full of memories. As a kid, he loved going out on the water with his dad, who was a commercial fisherman. And Chris remembers the cold winter mornings when he would heat up fresh milk his aunt dropped off, or the excitement he felt when the mobile library truck would stop by the island, and how whole afternoons would slip by on a nice day just hanging out with friends and neighbors. But talking with Chris now, underneath his house on stilts, he says mainly his favorite thing to do is just sit and enjoy his surroundings. I like the quietness, the simplicity of it. This gentle breeze right here coming in. I know that maybe to some people it might not mean much, but sometimes you see a raccoon, you know, crossing the street, or you'll see a, a nice, beautiful otter. Chris says when his dad was growing up here, the island was actually surrounded by fresh water from nearby bayous and channels and lush with vegetation. The land still had the supplements and nutrients that it needed to be able to produce gardens and fruit trees and all of this here. But since he was a kid, Chris remembers salt water from the Gulf creeping closer and closer as the land eroded. And now... And now it's all salt water. Chris has spent the last 20 years watching the land disappear and contemplating what the future might hold. Do you remember when you first started hearing talk of, of being, of moving? Well, when it comes to talking about relocation, that would, that would go back to our uh, traditional chief of the island, which is Chief Albert Nockham, and that for him... 20 years ago, single-handedly, he began advocating, you know, the need uh, for relocation. 
About 20 years ago, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers started planning a massive levee system to protect Louisiana's coastal parishes from hurricanes and flooding and decided to exclude Ile de Jean Charles from the project. The way Chris tells it, the tribal chief, Chief Albert Nakan, saw the writing on the wall and began advocating to relocate the community to safer ground. At first, he didn't have a lot of support. No, we we didn't agree. Not even not even me. Uh, if you would have asked me twenty something years ago, uh, if I would have still been living on the island, I I could say yes with with a, with a definite yes. But eventually, Chris changed his mind. Over the years, he watched as more land disappeared and storm surge got worse, and more of his neighbors left on their own. Last summer, Hurricane Ida came tearing through, causing major damage to most of the island, including Chris's house. After the storm, he had to camp in a tent underneath his house for 19 days until a local organization donated trailers to as many residents as they could. So it wasn't one big turning point for him. The unlivability of the island just became impossible to ignore. And, you know, that kind of hurts to be put in that position because I really love living on Allergene Charles because it's the only place that a majority of us has ever known as home. When we visited, Chris was still living in that trailer, but he wasn't in a rush to leave. So when people ask you, are you excited to move into your new house? I keep away from that word. And it's like, no, <laughs> I'm not excited about going over there. I, I made a decision to go over there, but I'm not excited about going over there. As I spent more time with Chris, it was clear that he hadn't really made peace with his decision. Knowing that there was a time that Native Americans were looked down upon, discriminated against, you know. Allergene Charles and all of the lower community, coastal communities, you know, in Terrebonne Parish and Bayou Fouche and all of this here, um, all of that is inhabited by by mostly Native Americans. And so whenever the world was finished with you and you went back home to your community, once you was back with your people, you knew you was good. It's just not something you could just let go of and and forget and and take for granted. Um, It's something you have to hang on to because of its history. One significant comfort is that the resettlement agreement allows residents to keep their houses on the island for fishing or recreation. So Chris plans to visit as much as he can. He doesn't want to lose that connection. I'm not changing myself. I'm just relocating. (laughs) In the end, Chief Albert Nakan, who first pushed for resettlement, opted not to join Chris and the others in the new aisle, The story is complicated, but ultimately, Nakan and other tribal members say the state took over the plan and cut the tribe out of the process. So when they say they tried to involve members of the community every step of the way... That's a lot. Yeah, that did happen. This is Demay Nakan, current chief of the Jean-Charles Choctaw Nation. His uncle, Albert, is the elder chief. Demay says that over the years, the tribe had developed its own resettlement plan. It was centered around giving the Choctaw tribe a place to be reunited 
to have their history and culture preserved. They had found architects to work with and had made plans for new homes, green spaces, a community center, a museum, even an assisted living center for elder tribal members. We had all the plans set up, and once money was granted, uh, the state took over, and the tribe had no more say-so. In response, the State Office of Community Development says it did invite DeMay's tribe into the design and construction process, but there are actually two tribes involved. Some residents of Ile de Jean Charles are members of both, and some aren't affiliated with either tribe. And state officials say they couldn't make the plan solely about what the Choctaw tribe wanted without violating federal guidelines. DeMay says they got some of what they wanted a safe place for tribal members to live if they want. But it's not to the level we had planned. But even after all that, he says, the new aisle is actually pretty nice. Have you been over to the new aisle? Oh, yeah. To check it out? Yeah, yeah. What do you think? I love it. Yeah? Really nice. Yeah, really nice. But <laughs> there are some flaws. They have, they have some things to fix, uh, contract to screw ups and things of that nature. Uh, like what? I think flooding. Flooding? <laughs> flooding under the houses, under the homes. Yeah. I know, a little ironic. The Office of Community Development says there was an issue with water pooling under houses after heavy rains, but its contractor addressed the problem. But the whole thing shows just how challenging managed retreat is going to be. With climate change, there are going to be a lot of communities, many indigenous communities, facing similar choices. You know, what, what advice would you give to the government if that's where the money is coming from, to, to do this in a better way in the future. Listen to the tribe. Listen to the people. Listen to the leaders of the community. Forty miles north of Ile de Jean Charles, we drive into the new aisle. Oh, wow. That must be it. To see it for ourselves. Jean Charles Boulevard. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, I guess it's probably... Yeah, those new houses out there. It could hardly be more different from the old aisle. We're on a newly paved road. Speed limit 25. Whoops. Haley. <laughs> <laughs> Lining that road are spanking new one- and two-story wood frame houses, painted yellow, light blue, and gray, the vegetation is sparse, with young trees still propped up by stakes. This was midsummer, and construction workers in orange vests were putting on the finishing touches before the first arrivals started moving in in a few weeks. Hi there. Hi. I'm Amy Scott. Hi, Amy. Pat Forbes. Nice to meet you. Pat Forbes is the executive director of the Louisiana Office of Community Development. He's been overseeing the resettlement project since the very beginning. We're standing in front of the house Chris Brunet will eventually move into. It's a lovely place. You can see he's got the, uh, the wheelchair ramp. And uh, it's all accessible inside. Screen porch in the back, front porch. Chris chose one of the two-story houses. His niece and nephew are going to move in with him once it's all ready. 
is light gray with white trim and a red door, and it's built for storms. Remember when we visited that insurance industry research lab earlier in the season? All the homes here are built to that fortified gold standard we talked about, with hurricane impact windows and extra waterproofing on the roofs, and they're elevated well above the floodplain. In fact, uh, several of our houses were were about 90% constructed when Hurricane Ida hit last year. And so they suffered pretty much the brunt of that storm here at the New Isle, and there was almost no damage to any of the homes. Maybe best of all, Chris and his neighbors won't have a mortgage payment, though they will have to cover insurance and taxes. If they live in their houses for five years, they'll own them outright. But affordable housing for residents comes at a big cost. We're spending $48 million to move 40, give or take a few families, right? Yeah, that's more than a million dollars per family. So that's not a sustainable model. We have to learn how to do this less expensively. The money came from HUD, the federal housing agency, the first federal grant to relocate an entire community affected by climate change. The whole process has taken years, and when applications first opened in March 2019, only 16 families signed up. Some of that is mistrust of the government. Uh, that mistrust is is multiplied many times by the fact that this is a Native American community that has gotten the short end of the stick many, many times before, including when they first moved to Ile de Jean Charles to get away from being run out of the country. Pat says the state tried to involve the people of Ile de Jean Charles in everything from where to locate the new community to the design of the houses. They even got to pick their neighbors. This far inland, there wasn't much water around, so the state constructed some ponds and restored natural bayous that used to be on the land. It's not the same as being in the Gulf of Mexico. They literally can walk out their back door and throw a cast net and catch shrimp and eat shrimp for lunch. Can't do that here, but we did everything we could working with them to try to make it as as close to home as possible. Move-ins started in August. 34 families have arrived since then. Some, like DeMay and other tribal members who had already left the island on their own, decided to stay where they are. Just four households remain on Ile de Jean Charles. In September, Chris and his niece and nephew moved into their new house. We called them up to see how things were going. They were settling in with their dog, Coco. Hang on there, I have probably, I'm going to have to get to my room where it won't echo as much. Chris says it's going okay. He's happy to have his family so close, and some things feel familiar. My uncle, um, that was my neighbor to the right side of me on the island, um, is my neighbor on the left side of me over here. Do you think it will ever feel like home? It'll be a long time before you get to that point right there. There's no place like Isla Jean Charles. Ile de Jean Charles is one example of what managed retreat can look like, but it's expensive and complicated, and it raises a lot of questions. 
who's protected and who's not. And the concern is that some of that will come down to, well, who's rich? A better way to manage retreat after the break. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org slash academy. So what does managed retreat really mean? I define it as purposeful, coordinated, supported uh, relocation of people and assets away from areas that are highly hazardous. This is Dr. A.R. Siders. She's an assistant professor at the University of Delaware and co-directs the university's climate change science and policy hub. A.R. says as a country, we've been doing some form of managed retreat for a while. Every single state in the U.S. has already done managed retreat. Like, every single state in the U.S. has already relocated homes away from areas that are too risk-prone. She says it's unusual for a whole community, like Ile de Jean Charles, to have the option to relocate to the same place. But it's getting more common. The Biden administration just gave $75 million to resettle three tribal communities threatened by climate change. Typically, she says, retreat happens in the form of individual buyouts. After a disaster or repeated flooding, the government offers homeowners money to relocate. Sometimes it can be difficult to sell a damaged home in a flood-prone area and to recoup your financial losses. So this, to me, is a clear area for the government to step in and provide a real option while also making people safer. The government will then remove the house and turn the land into open space. But what about people who just want to stay, even if they know the risks? One creative tactic that AR really likes is called life estates. Life estates are basically, I buy your house now, and you live here to the end of your life. Or for as long as you want. But then the government can prevent someone else from buying or inheriting the house in the future. Either way, though, the government usually gets involved, for better or worse. AR says it's one thing when you're dealing with a wealthy beachfront community with a lot of second homes. But a community like Ile de Jean Charles? I think we should be handling like indigenous communities in a totally different way than we handle other communities because there's such a legacy of injustice and discrimination and right, that we have to also address at the same time. 
She says officials need to respect tribal sovereignty and culture. And most importantly, given the history of forced removal, indigenous communities need to feel like they have a choice. And then having real options available, so that their choices are real, true choices. It's not just the least bad option, right, that, that you have actual choices in front of you. The decision to leave Ile de Jean Charles out of that levy system made some residents feel that they didn't have a real choice about whether to relocate. AR says officials also need to think about equity in deciding which places to save. You don't build million-dollar flood walls in front of $100,000 homes. You build them in front of million-dollar neighborhoods. But a seawall or levee in that million-dollar neighborhood can actually cause more flooding in another less protected area. And so where are you building the walls influences where retreat will happen and vice versa. And there's also a need for some like real strategic planning about how those pieces come together. And then there's the cost. One estimate I've seen is that there is $1.7 trillion worth of infrastructure within 700 feet of the U.S. coast. Uh, so in theory, you could remove everything in the U.S. within 700 feet of the U.S. coast for $1.7 trillion. And if that seems like a lot... I mean, it is. But the price tag of staying in place is also really expensive. The White House estimates damage from climate change could cost the federal government $2 trillion each year by the end of the century. Another big challenge when it comes to large-scale retreat, where do all the people go? And how will the rest of the country handle the influx? So high estimates are something like 15 to 40 million Americans could be at risk of sea level rise by the end of the century. All right, that sounds like a lot, but already in the U.S., roughly 30 million Americans move every single year. So it's roughly the equivalent of what moves in one year moving over the course of the next 80 years. Unless they all move to the same small town in Kansas, <laughs> it is unlikely that they are going to overwhelm that community or that infrastructure. Now, it's not out of the question that a place gets a ton of new people at once. We've seen that happen in the aftermath of major disasters like Hurricane Katrina, when Houston and other cities got slammed. But that's not managed retreat. That's unmanaged retreat, right? That, that is why, like, that is the exact reason why this needs to be managed rather than unmanaged. I've been in exile after Katrina, right? I had to go to Baton Rouge for nearly two years. This is Richie Blink. He grew up in Louisiana and experienced this kind of unmanaged retreat firsthand. After Hurricane Katrina, he moved to Baton Rouge for a while, and he did not feel welcome. You know, all you're doing there is just contributing to traffic. You're in line at the grocery store. People are upset with you. It's not a good place to be, right? He thinks back on that now, in light of what those on Ile de Jean Charles are going through. And he's worried. This country is not prepared for what's getting ready to be uh, a mass migration, right? If we're going to, and I say we, if the United States policies are, are forcing people off the coast, working class people, you know, there's, there's no social safety net for where they're arriving to, right? And so there's really important things that we need to be figuring out in this country. Richie now lives in Empire, Louisiana, right near the water. He represents his community as a council member for the Plaquemines Parish, and... My day job, I do eco-tours here, so I, I spend time teaching folks about uh, the Mississippi River Delta. 
And that is why we wanted to talk with him. Richie runs Delta Discovery Tours, an eco-tour business on the Mississippi Delta, and he's seen firsthand how sea level rise and land loss have ravaged the coast. We meet him at a harbor in Empire, 125 miles east from Ile de Jean Charles. All right, thank you. And hop aboard his light blue boat. So what's your vessel's name? New Delta. It's called New Delta because Richie says the land out here is changing in some surprising ways and offering hope. We're going to head further out and we're going to go look at where the healing is happening. So we've got areas of land loss and, and bays that are now beginning to fill in and turn into new deltas. Richie says that this area has experienced a kind of rebirth. In the eastern bank of the Mississippi River, a small opening has been growing. It's called Neptune's Pass. The opening has allowed more fresh water to flow through the channel and bring more sediment to the area. And as that sediment builds up over time, new land is forming. Going through the pass, Richie takes us out to Bay Denise. It's so serene out here. Willows sway in the breeze. There's wildlife everywhere. This is one of my favorite places in the Delta. Richie points to a small group of birds clustered in the distance. These little tuxedo-looking birds, they have incredibly long legs. They have the uh, second highest leg-to-body ratio after the African flamingo, right? (laughs) Oh, that's so cool. They're tiny little birds with super long legs. I think that is my favorite stat we've ever gotten. Yeah, the leg-to-body ratio. It wasn't until about three years ago that the scenery really started changing. Uh, There's a clump of common giant reed up here on the left, right, which is just 10 yards in front of the boat. That was the former shoreline. And up ahead of us, at least maybe a quarter mile or so, there are 15-foot willow trees growing. So this is all new land. And this is just happening, right? This kind of growth of an ecosystem, it's not just beautiful. It's also a really important and natural solution to defending from worsening storms and hurricanes. These willow trees that are growing in, they have an incredible amount of knockdown power for storm surge, right? And so it's expensive to go build concrete, flood walls and levees and bigger pumping stations. But these natural solutions are gonna really help to get us by. Everything here feels like it's thriving. There's a cow over there. Hello. Oh, a couple of them. This is grazing land, huh? Yeah, they've got to be the happiest cows ever, right? Nobody's bothering them. They have free range. They're in a beautiful place. Yeah, pretty happy cows. I don't blame them. It's not as buggy as I would have thought either. Is that the breeze or? It's, it's, it's where people alter nature, where things get out of hand. Out here on the water, with the breeze on my face, listening to the waves lap against the boat, I remember something my mom once told me about why we just feel good when we're near the water. It's the negative ions, she said. I mean, not to get all woo-woo on you in the final moments of the season, but it's true. The body has a physiological reaction to these invisible particles in the air produced by ocean waves or falling water. Water is life. And over the past several months, whether it was on Miami Beach, down in the Keys, on Ile de Jean Charles, or out here on the Mississippi Delta, the attachment that these communities had to the water, that truly we all have to it, was visceral. So what do you do then when you have too much of it? 
How will we keep living near the water as the water rises? Well, here's a recap of some of the solutions we dug into this season with a few familiar voices. First, we've got to build our houses and businesses higher. This house is now 18 feet above sea level. And stronger. We're trying to make sure that we are building strong and effective and keeping Mother Nature out. And we've got to make sure it's not just wealthy people and communities who benefit. We're not asking for a million-dollar home, but what we would like is to have a, a safe and decent home on higher ground. We'll need to restore some of our best natural defenses against rising seas and stronger storms. What Everglades Restoration really aims to do is bring back that flow of fresh water, and we're already starting to see the benefits of that. We have to fix the insurance and reinsurance markets so they can help us recover from climate disasters. There's always a love-hate relationship between insurance companies and, and the Florida market. And rethink the incentives that keep people living and rebuilding in harm's way. So banks continue to lend in risky markets in large part because they're not bearing those risks directly. And finally, we will have to figure out how to let go of some of the places we love. Enjoy Miami. We have maybe 20, 30 good years left. And then what? And then we got to go. Each individual solution might feel inadequate or overwhelming on its own. But combined, small solutions add up. And for me, at least, it serves as a good reminder that progress can feel slow and frustrating. But our survival depends on it. Thanks for sticking around this season. And if you like what you're hearing, please rate and review this podcast and share it with a friend. It really does help us out. And our inbox is still open, even in the off season. We love hearing from you. If you got questions, comments, maybe even a brilliant idea for what we should cover next season, whatever it is, you can send it our way. That's survive at marketplace.org. How We Survive is hosted by me, Amy Scott. Haley Hirschman produced this episode with help from our production team, Olivia Zhao and Grace Rubin. Caitlin Esch is our senior producer. Our editor is Jasmine Romero. Sound design by Chris Julin and audio engineering by Brian Allison. Our theme music is by Wonderly. Special thanks this week to Rima Crace and Kristen Schwab. Francesca Levy is the executive director of On Demand. And Neil Scarborough is the general manager of Marketplace. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.